0: If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to Revelation chapter 14. So we come now in chapter 14 to the end of this long interlude in the unveiling of this vision that the Apostle John is receiving in this book. It's lasted from chapter 12 now through chapter 14. And so as we get to this kind of pivotal moment in the book, this kind of line of demarcation before we move on, I thought it would be helpful just to provide a little bit of a synopsis of where we are in this book. Jesus shows up to John as he is on the island of Patmos exiled. And he tells John to write down what he sees in a vision. And the first thing that he gives them in this vision are seven letters to seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. Letters of encouragement, letters of rebuke, depending on the condition of each of the churches. And then in chapter 4, we have this grand vision of the throne of God in heaven. In chapter 5, we see that the one who sits on the throne is holding a scroll, and that scroll is sealed. It's closed. That scroll represents God's plans to bring final judgment to sin and evil on the world, to finally and completely save all of his children and to make all things new. That's what's contained in this scroll. But it's a sad moment, the beginning of that chapter, because no one is able to open the scroll except the lamb, as we just sang about. Only the lamb is worthy to open that scroll. And so in chapter 6, the lamb, who is Jesus, begins to do so. He begins to break the seals. And each of those seals is is prophetically unveiling tribulation on the earth. In chapter 6, he opens six of the seven seals. But before he opens the seventh, there is our first interlude in chapter 7. And in chapter 7, we have two visions of the church. First, of the 144,000, arrayed as if in battle formation, entering into the tribulation. And secondly, a picture of the church as that great uncountable multitude coming out of the tribulation, standing before the throne, worshiping the Lamb. And then, in chapter 8, that seventh seal is opened. And that immediately gives way to the seven trumpet judgments. And like the seal judgments, those trumpet judgments depict suffering and tribulation on the earth for both believer and unbeliever alike. The first four trumpets are opened in chapter 8, and then trumpets 5 and 6 are blown in chapter 9. But again, before the seventh trumpet is blown, there is another interlude in the unveiling of this vision in chapters 10 and 11. In chapter 10... We have the mighty angel and the little scroll and that whole story there that really is the commissioning of the Apostle John to proclaim these prophecies and these testimonies. But then in chapter 11, we have the story of the two witnesses, which again was another picture of the church, this time of the church in its role of proclaiming gospel truth in a lost world suffering persecution but ultimately being rescued by her king the lamb But the end of chapter 11 that's when we finally get to the seventh trumpet the seventh trumpet is blown and that marks the end but before we get to the description of the end we have this interlude that we're in right now chapters 12 13 and 14 in chapter 12, we saw the woman who gave birth to the male child who was Jesus, and there was this dragon that, that represented Satan who sought to devour the child, but he was unsuccessful in doing so. But since he was unsuccessful in doing so, he then turns his attention on the community of faith that gives birth to the Messiah, which is, of course, the church. Then in chapter 13, which we finished last week, we saw that the two main instruments that the dragon Satan uses in his attacks to persecute the church are these two characters, the Antichrist and the false prophet, which we learned that both of these were represented by concrete historical people and empires throughout the church age, but who all point to eschatological figures who will in the future seek to deceive the church and destroy the church this brings us now to the precipice of chapter 14 the end of this three chapter long interlude and in this chapter there are three distinct but inseparable visions the first five verses first five verses give us a picture of the 144,000 again representing the church and they're worshiping the lamb before the throne. Verses 6 through 13 then, give us a picture of three angels. John tells us about three angels that are flying overhead that give three specific messages or proclamations of judgment and wrath that is to come. And then in the closing vision in verses 14 through 20, We see the execution of that judgment and wrath. I had originally planned to cover chapter 14 in three weeks. Um, But as I studied and as I reflected on this chapter, I decided to cover the whole chapter in one sermon. So I know that you set your clocks back last night. You got an extra hour of sleep. So I intend to make good use of it this morning. But the reason why I want to try to cover this chapter in one setting is because there's a consistency in these three visions. There's a thematic union to them as they progress from one to the other. And I think we miss something if we separate them too starkly. These visions, as we've seen before, these visions form a telescoping view to the end of the world much like the sixth seal did in chapter 6 and the seventh trumpet did at the end of chapter 11, now for the third time, John's vision here in chapter 14, if we take these three visions together as a unit, gives us a telescopic view of the very end leading up to the return of Christ and the final judgment of sin and evil. So I want us to read all of chapter 14, and as we read this chapter, I want you to keep those three visions in mind as we see John progress from one to the other, giving us a view of the very end. Church, this is God's Word. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins." It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Second vision. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every tribe, nation, language, and people, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. And then the third and final vision. Then I looked and behold a white cloud temple in heaven. And he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside the city And blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you so much for this word. And we ask now that you would attend to the reading of your word with your Holy Spirit to give us understanding as to what it says And Father, more importantly, that it might bear spiritual fruit in our lives, in our families, and in our church for your glory. I pray, Father, that you would use me and my humble attempts of study to unpack your word so that us, your people, might be edified by it. And that you might be ultimately glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen so we can see the three visions here right they're set apart as john says three different times that he he sees something then i saw something in verse one he says then i looked and behold there's two sight words there in verse six he says then i saw another angel and then again in verse 14 he says then i looked and behold again two sight words. And this helps us to distinguish between these visions, but again, we can't separate them. Not completely, because they go together. They progress from one to the other, and so I want want us to unpack them in that same order. The first vision begins with Jesus standing on Mount Zion. Now, I take this to refer to the New Jerusalem that is to come, which will represent God's dwelling place among his people. Not a physical Jerusalem, but a new Jerusalem, as we'll learn at the end of the book, that comes down out of heaven, the new heaven and the new earth. This is God's dwelling place among his people. And so what this is is a prophetic picture of Jesus standing in his holy dwelling, the new jerusalem and so this is either the millennial kingdom or or most probably the eternal state but regardless it is a prophetic picture of jesus but it's also a prophetic picture of the church because who is with him verse 1 continues the 144000 who had his <coughs> excuse me his name and his father's name written on their foreheads and as we noted before when we first encountered the 144000 back in chapter 7 These are a a figurative representation of all of the redeemed of all of the ages. In other words, the church. And as they did in chapter 7, they have the seal of God on them. And now we learn that this seal is the name of the lamb and the father of the lamb written on their foreheads. And the seal of God here is, is contrasted with the mark of the beast that we learned about In chapter 13, those who worship the beast and the image of the beast receive the mark of the beast. But these 144,000 representing the church receive the mark of God or the seal of God on them. And as we learned last week in John's vision, we have either one or the other. Either we have the seal of God on us, And consequently, we are subjected to the wrath of the beast or we have the mark of the beast and we are consequently subjected to the wrath of God as one or the other. We can debate about whether or not this is referring to literal marks one day. But I take this as apocalyptic language that is simply distinguishing that there will be those who worship Jesus And there will be those who worship the beast or other false gods. The mark is simply apocalyptic language, figuratively telling us who worships whom. Those who receive the seal of God on their forehead are those who worship Jesus, as we'll see in this vision. And those who receive the mark of the beast are those who don't worship Jesus. They worship other gods as we'll see in the next vision, regardless of whether or not they have a literal mark on their forehead or not. So this is a picture of Jesus and the 144,000, the church, the redeemed of all of the ages in the new Jerusalem at the end of the tribulation, I believe after Jesus's return. And what are they doing? What are they doing in this vision? They're worshiping. That's what they're doing. They're worshiping. They're singing a new song. The the, the phrase new song is is common in the scriptures. We see God's people singing a new song often in the Psalms and and the prophets especially. And every time they do sing a new song it is in reference to God's mighty acts on their behalf. And God's people are celebrating what God has done in their new song. And we're told here that they sing before the throne. Which means that they're worshiping the one who is seated on the throne. And they're worshiping the lamb who is standing at the throne. They're worshiping him in his very presence. And we're told that they're not alone, right? That also there are the four living creatures and the 24 elders. We learned about them first from that great throne room scene in chapter 4. The four living creatures are these mighty angelic beasts with six wings and eyes all around, we're told, and they've got a song of their own. And John tells us in chapter four that they're constantly singing, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. So they're there in this vision and they're singing their song. And then there are the elders, the 24 elders, also angelic beings that somehow represent the people of God in heaven before the throne. And we're also told in chapter 4 that every time that the four living creatures give glory to the one on the throne, which is constant, the 24 elders bow down and they sing their own song. They sing, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And so the 144,000 are are singing before the throne, and there's this grand chorus of the 24 elders and the four living creatures that is also reverberating all around them. And look at how John describes the sound of the singing of the 144,000. He uses three metaphors here. First, the roar of many waters. Secondly, the sound of thunder. And thirdly, like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And the point is that it is loud and it is beautiful. It is a full, all-encompassing sound that John hears that is a beautiful sound beautiful sound. The roar of many waters is meant to remind us of a deafening sound that with the roar of many waters, we can't hear much else besides that. And it's like the sound of thunder, he says, which is a soul-stirring sound. And I think here, John is, is more describing how he felt the sound as much as he is hearing the sound. And he says it's like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Now, that doesn't mean that we're all going to get harps in heaven and we're all going to play harps for all of eternity. That alone would be reason enough to not want to interpret Revelation literally all the time. Because who wants that? Maybe there's some who would want that. The point here is that the sound that John heard was absolutely beautiful. It wasn't just loud and all encompassing and deafening, though it was. But it was also beautiful. It was melodic. It was angelic. It was a beautiful sound, like harpists playing on their harps. And John tells us that only the redeemed could learn this new song, which means that the angels, these great angelic beings, couldn't even learn it because they're not redeemed. They were never lost to be redeemed. Only those who are redeemed can learn this song. And it's noteworthy there in verse 3 that he associates the 144,000 with those who were redeemed from the earth, which seems to reinforce the conclusion that the 144,000 are in fact representative of all of the redeemed of all of the ages. In other words, the church. But then upon... Mentioning the redeemed of the earth here, John launches into this lengthy description of the redeemed. What are they like? How do they live their lives? Verses 4 and 5. He begins by saying first that it is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. Again, we're not to interpret that literally. If we did, it would mean for us that it is equating women and any sexual relationship with them, including that of marriage, as something that defiles, which he's not saying that at all. Again, this is figurative. John is referring here to spiritual defilement, not physical defilement. He's using the language of the defilement of women to refer to worshiping other gods. And so he's talking here about spiritual adultery, and, and worshiping other gods rather than physical adultery with women. This whole chapter is drawing that distinction between those who worship the lamb and those who worship the beast and the image of the beast and other false gods. And those who worship the beast and other false gods, they have defiled themselves spiritually just as a husband who sleeps around with other women, defiled himself. But these 144,000 have not done that. They have remained pure. They have remained true to their bridegroom. And the fact that John refers to them here as virgins likens the relationship between the 144,000 and the lamb to that of betrothal, not yet of marriage, but of betrothal, that the 144,000 have kept themselves pure for their bridegroom. They have remained virgins for him, not defiling themselves, but saving themselves for marriage, which points to the marriage of the Lamb, which will come at the end of the book. So these 144,000 are, are described here as, as loyal. They are faithful. They're not giving themselves to other gods. And, and verse 4 continues. He says, it is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. So they're following the lamb. They're following Jesus. They are obedient disciples who, who follow Jesus wherever he leads them. And however hard it gets, they continue to follow him. And then John Closes this description of them by saying, These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth was no lie, for they are blameless. And so John at the end here seems to be highlighting their righteousness, doesn't he? He seems to be highlighting their superior morality of the hundred and forty-four thousand. Now, why does he do that? We know that they are redeemed by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, right? We know that they are not redeemed because of their superior morality, or because they live differently, or because of their own works. That is not what redeems them. And so why does John emphasize their righteousness in this vision? Well, we've got to remember the purpose of the book. The purpose of Revelation, we've said, is to equip the church to persevere through times of great tribulation, whether now or in the future. And part of this requires the followers of Jesus to follow him faithfully, loyally, obediently, and to fight against indwelling sin, and to choose daily to do things his way and not the way of the world. And so the reason for this emphasis on their righteousness in this vision is the sanctification of the reader both the reader of the first century and the reader of the 21st century because we are if we put our faith in Christ we are part of the 144,000 that we would grow in our holiness and it would begin to flesh out in how we live our lives and we begin to look differently but the sanctification of the 144,000 is not an end in and of itself, and it's not the end in this vision. The end or or the purpose of the 144,000 being sanctified and being preserved in the faith and being separate from the world to the very end, the end of that is the worship of God. That is the purpose of the sanctification of the 144,000. Look at the end of verse 4. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. Why have they been redeemed? Why why have they been kept as firstfruits for God and for the Lamb? These 144,000, again, representing the church, representing those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope for rescue from what they deserve and reconciled to God. They're presented here as an offering of worship as a first fruit offering to God and to the Lamb. So the sanctifying effect of this first vision is not achieved simply by describing the moral superiority and righteousness of the 144,000, but by showing the reader of the first century and the reader of the 21st century that they too and we too will one day be presented as an offering of worship before the lamb knowing this for that the church of that day and the church of today ought to compel us to want to pursue holiness with great fervor and passion so that we too can present ourselves to god one day as the most beautiful the most delightful the most holy offering of worship that we possibly can because we are convinced that he deserves that. Ultimately, the focus of these first five verses is not the 144,000, but the lamb. The lamb is on the throne who is the recipient of their worship. And so this is a picture of the church worshiping Jesus in the end. But, but it's not just our new song that we will offer to the Lamb in that day, but we will offer ourselves to Him as an offering of worship. And so we worship the Lord today, but not just with our lips when we sing, but with our very lives and how we live and what we do and the decisions that we make. In the words that we say, and the one that we follow, we are a worship service. And so the question for us is, what kind of worship is our life offering to the Lamb? Because the kind of worship that we're offering to the Lord in this life is a great indication of the the worship we will be offering to Him in the next. So... Let us offer him all of who we are for his glory. But as we see these fir- this first vision, it's, it's positive, it's joyful, it's, it's encouraging, it's celebratory as the church worships the lamb. And the other two visions are not that. In the second vision, three angels fly overhead and bring three similar messages of judgment and wrath and at the end john calls for the endurance of the saints as a result so let's look at the three angels and their messages first of all the first angel in verses six and seven proclaims a a a gospel and we're told that he has an eternal gospel to proclaim to the whole earth to everyone who lives on the earth now this leads us to a question that there is very little agreement on even in our own tribe of evangelicals and that is is this gospel proclamation given only those who have the mark of the beast who worship the beast and the image of the beast and who will not respond to any offer of peace with God no matter how compelling we make it or is it a genuine offer to the elect Those who have not yet come to faith, but who have been chosen before the foundation of the world by God to be recipients of his sovereign grace. Those who have not come to faith, but who have been chosen to come to faith. Who will come to faith upon the gospel being preached to them. It's very difficult, given the text here, to know for sure. One of the things that we keep in mind here is that everywhere else we see this reference to earth dwellers, and we've mentioned it many times in our study of Revelation already. But everywhere else we see that, it is a a reference to those who have the mark of the beast, those who worship the image, and who will not be saved. And it stands to reason that it means the same thing here. Others have noted that the word in the Greek that is used here in verse 6 for those who dwell on the earth, is a different word than that technical term that elsewhere in Revelation refers to earth dwellers. And it is a different word. The word here in verse 6 literally means those who live on the earth. The technical term used elsewhere is literally, literally means those who dwell on the earth. To me, they sound like synonyms. It doesn't sound like a, a, a sharp distinction between those two words. The response that this angel calls for in verse 7 is to fear God and give God glory and worship God. And we know that only those who have been made alive by the Spirit of God can do those things. The unregenerate, those who have not come to faith in Jesus, who are still dead in their trespasses and sins, cannot give glory to God and cannot worship God. So this seems to be something that that only the redeemed can do. And yet we know that the call to respond to the gospel, whether it is received and responded to or not, is a call to do these very things, to fear God and to give God glory and to worship God, whether or not the person can or will. To me the bottom line here is that this whole second vision in chapter in verses 13 or excuse me, verses 6 through 13, is all about a proclamation of judgment on those who refuse the gospel, on those who worship the image of the beast instead of the lamb. And so for me, I take this gospel proclamation to be a proclamation of judgment. And certainly we know that when we're called, as we are, when we're called to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world today, we know that in proclaiming that good news, we are also proclaiming judgment on those who reject that good news. Those who reject Christ as Lord, those who do not put their faith in Him as their only hope, maybe they put their faith in other gods, maybe they put their their faith in themselves to try to clean themselves up and be good enough for God, They are rejecting Christ, and they are rejecting his gospel. And for them, there is no atonement for sins, and there is no sacrifice to remove their guilt. And so for them, the proclamation of good news is a proclamation of judgment. So this first angel proclaims this eternal gospel The second angel announces the fall of Babylon. Now we're going to read a lot more about Babylon and what this represents in chapters 17 through 19, but suffice to say for now that Babylon, uh, the Babylonian empire, was for the ancient Hebrews uh, symbolic for an empire that represented the epitome of immorality and sin and evil in the world. And so that word Babylon became synonymous with that which is filled with immorality and sin and evil. And this Babylon here is likened to a woman who lures people to be entrapped in her snares. John writes in verse 8, She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual Immorality, referring to, to Babylon's power to draw men and women, to, to imbibe in the soul-deadening influence and power of sin. And this angel announces that this empire, whatever it represents in the future, that this empire is fallen. It was once great and impressive, and seemed to be the thing that everyone wanted to follow, and and emulate, and, and be influenced by, but now it's in ruins. It is no more. It is fallen. Church, may we remember and never forget that the world around us that is so antagonistic to the gospel, that rejects Christ's and his exclusivity as the only way for sinful man to be reconciled to a holy God. This world around us that seems to be yet moving forward and progressing and growing in popularity and influence of this world, the angel will one day say, it is fallen. And so may we not be taken by her or impressed by her, or influenced by her. May we be different from her and set apart, but may we, the church, be an outpost of the gospel within her. May we be a, a rescue mission that sends missionaries out into this world to whom we have been sent, proclaiming that gospel to our Neighbors, our workplaces, those in our community, so that others around us may have their hearts and their focus lifted from that which is fallen and focused on that which is eternal and everlasting. Then the third angel comes and announces wrath for those who worship the beast and the image of the beast and who have received the mark of the beast just as the first five verses of this chapter described in a sense the eternal state of the believer these verses describe for us the eternal state of those who do not come to faith in jesus and it is unspeakably horrifying Listen again to the words of this third angel as he describes those who will be judged according to their sin, verses 9 through 11. He says, if anyone worships the beast in, the, in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, and again, that is an active receiving, not a passive one, they will choose to receive it. It's not an accident. They choose to receive it. And those who do, he also So what is the eternal state of those who reject the gospel finally and do not come to faith in Jesus Christ? First, we're told that the full wrath of God is poured out on them. We don't talk a whole lot about the wrath of God in the 21st century American church. But perhaps we should. The wrath of God is the anger of God justly applied to the guilty in judgment and retribution. And friend, we, we are the guilty ones. We deserve that wrath to be poured out on us. And it is only by God's sovereign grace through faith in his son Jesus as our substitute and our Savior, that we are spared what we deserve. But the point here is that those who do not come to faith in Jesus are not spared this judgment. They are not spared his wrath. They get what we all deserve. They get his wrath poured out full strength in judgment. And punishment. Secondly we're told that those who do not have a savior. They will be tormented with fire and sulfur. And the fact that they are tormented. Reminds us that they are not annihilated. They are not destroyed into nothingness. But instead they are tormented. And this. Connotes to us. Conscious torment. They are conscious of this misery and while we cannot say for sure whether this fire is literal or figurative the reality is if it is figurative how awful must the thing be that it is figurative for for it to be described as being tormented with fire and not just for a while but forever because their punishment is eternal. John says the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And then fourthly, we're told that they have no rest. There's no rest from the torment of this fire. This is their constant, conscious experience forever. And there is no relief from it. It Reminds me of the story that Jesus told in Luke 16 of the the rich man and the, the poor man whose name was Lazarus. As Jesus told the story, Lazarus is the poor man. He dies and he goes to heaven. And heaven is depicted as Abraham's bosom. And the rich man dies and he goes to hell. Not because he's a rich man, but because he's a sinner who didn't trust in Christ. And Jesus tells the experience of that rich man in hell. And I want you to listen to what What is said of him in verses 23 and 24 of Luke 16, Jesus says, And in Hades, being in torment, same word that we see here in Revelation 14, being in torment, this rich man lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But of course, as we go on in the story, Lazarus couldn't do that. For a great chasm had been fixed between them. And no man could go from one to the other. So there was no relief from the anguish. There was no rest from that Torment for him. And neither will there be for those who do not come to faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope. The emphasis of this section here in this second vision is, is on the announcing of the coming judgment, the announcing of the wrath that's going to be poured out on those who dwell on the earth. So, what's the purpose of that announcement? Remember that Revelation is not written to those who have the mark of the beast. It's written to those who have the seal of God. Revelation is written to the church. So what's the purpose of announcing this coming judgment and wrath? I think there are two purposes, two reasons why this is included here. Perhaps we could unpack others, but two I just want to offer. One is that I think there's an evangelizing purpose here. And secondly, a sanctifying purpose. The evangelizing purpose is that this horrifying description of hell would compel the first century readers to bring this gospel message to those around them in their first century Asia Minor cities who were lost and headed for a Christless eternity in hell where they would experience this conscious misery and torment forever. And Similarly, this ought to compel us to do the same. None of us wants this to be the experience of anyone, or I hope it isn't. If we do want this for someone, we need to repent of that. This is horrible. None of us wants this for anyone. And the only way it won't be for them is that for those who deserve this, to trust in Christ alone, to be forgiven and justified through faith in his life, death, and resurrection. And God intended that that message would go out through his people. And so there's an evangelizing reason to this. But then, secondly, there's a, there's a sanctifying purpose to this as well. And that is that this passage ought to remind us of the seriousness of sin. We're struck with that, right? We see the horrifying nature of this judgment. And as horrifying as it is, we know that it is just because sin is so such a stench in the nostrils of God. This ought to remind us of that. The reason why unbelievers experience this horrifying judgment is because they are sinners who have no advocate, no atonement, no covering, no forgiveness. They have no Savior, they have no Lamb that takes away the guilt of their sin. And the only reason why believers do not experience this and will not experience this is because we do have a Savior who has taken away our guilt. But knowing that this is a just and right punishment for sin, and then in the next breath, realizing that we have indwelling sin in us, man, this ought to compel us to fight against indwelling sin with ruthless abandon and passion, That's the sanctifying part of this, that we might fight against indwelling sin, that we might mortify the flesh and pursue holiness, not so that we will be better than anyone else, but again, so that our lives might be a pleasing and holy offering of worship to the Lamb, which leads us to the last part of this second vision in verses 12 and 13, where where John calls for the endurance of the saints. If we're going to be able to offer ourselves as a pleasing and holy sacrifice to the Lamb one day, then we must endure. We must persevere in the faith and as he says, keep his commandments. Not to save ourselves, but so that we might present ourselves as a holy and pleasing offering of sacrifice and praise to God and our King. And so... We fight against sin in ourselves. We mortify the flesh. We we endure suffering in the here and now. We persevere in the faith, no matter how hard it gets. And friends, that is hard work. That is hard labor. That is toil in the here and now. But we're, we're reminded that for those who have come to faith in Jesus, rest is coming. Rest is coming. As John hears from another voice in heaven, in verse 13, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. For those who die apart from Christ, there is no rest, we're told. There's no rest from their torment, but those who die in the Lord, they will rest from their labors. So church, for now, let us labor on. Let us continue to persevere and endure and mortify the flesh and pursue holiness together. And the rest is coming later. And this brings us to the third and final vision of chapter 14 in verses 6 through 13 that second vision that's all about announcing judgment and this final vision is all about executing judgment and here judgment is described as reaping a harvest and, and two harvests are described for us here the first is jesus he's got the crowns he's this this is the one who is like a son of man It's the one that we were presented to in chapter 1 and in chapter 4 and all throughout the book of Revelation. This is Jesus, and he's reaping the harvest of the earth. The second harvest is the harvest of another angel that's described, and he reaps a harvest of grapes. Now, much ink has been spilled on whether that first harvest refers to a harvest of believers that are harvested unto eternal life, by Jesus or whether that also like the second harvest is a harvest of judgment and while both of those subjects receive ample attention in the scriptures I think that what we have here in the third vision is that it's continuing that metaphor of judgment from the second vision and so I take this to be two descriptions of the same judgment the same harvest a harvest of judgment In both instances, the harvest is said to be ripe, it's ready. In other words, the sin and the evil and the injustice of those who dwell on the earth has reached its climax. And the end of God's patience with sinful man has been reached. And it is time for God's wrath time to harvest and so in the first instance the, the earth is reaped and those who dwell on the earth those who worship the beast or are, are who, who do not have the seal of god on their forehead who have not come to faith in christ judgment is executed on them and in the second instance which is a, a retelling of the first the harvest of grapes is reaped and listen again to the description of the grape harvest In verses 19 and 20. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. John Steinbeck's famous Great Depression era novel, The Grapes of Wrath, gets its title from these closing verses of chapter 12, chapter 14. But the grapes here are a metaphor for sin and evil and injustice in the world. And when harvest time comes, all that evil will be harvested from the earth. And the earth dwellers, the evildoers, will be judged and punished, and their judgment will be like the grapes that are trodden down in the winepress. And the grape juice that is flows out of the winepress is figuratively said to be blood here, as in the blood of those who reject Christ. And John says that it, is, it was as high as a horse's bridle, five to six feet. And it spread out for 1,600 stadia, which is about 185 miles. Now again, this is figurative. We know that those who reject Christ will be tormented forever, as we learned earlier. Not annihilated, but still John's vision of this blood, six feet high, spreading out in all directions for 200, nearly 200 miles, is a horrifying vision of judgment, of what sinners like us deserve apart from Christ. Church, praise God. God. That he made a way for sinners like us to be saved from that. You know, it is, it's good and right for us to often speak of what we are saved to in salvation. We are saved to a right relationship with our creator. We are saved to Jesus We are saved to that which Peter calls an undefiled, imperishable, and unfading inheritance. But in being saved to that, we are saved from something. We are saved from this horrifying judgment that's described here, which is what we wholly deserve because of our sin And rebellion praise God that he sent his son Jesus Christ to live the perfectly righteous life that we never could to die in our place on a cross taking the judgment that we deserve and rising three days later proving that he has paid the price finally and completely and God has accepted that payment as sufficient for the sins of all those who would come to him in faith. Praise God that he made a way for us to be saved from this. The question is, are you? Are you saved from this judgment that is described here? If you've not come to faith in Jesus Christ, then you're not. And this horrifying judgment that is described here is what is in store for you if you do not come to faith in Christ. I'll pull no punches. This is what's in store for you for all of eternity. I beg of you, throw yourself on the mercies of God and trust in Christ alone. And if you have come to faith in Christ, it means you have been saved already from this judgment to come. And if that describes you, then this morning I want to invite you in just a moment to stand with me and join with me in a new song like the redeemed will sing. A song celebrating joy and victory. A song worshiping our King. A song glorifying His name. And may this closing song, church, may may it be a rehearsal for us Of the song we will sing together one day in glory. Let's pray. Father, as difficult as these pictures in this chapter are for us to read and hear expounded upon, we thank you that you are a just and good God. We thank you that evil and injustice in the world will be met with justice. And we are so thankful, Father, that we who have come to faith in Jesus will not get what we deserve, but because of your grace and your sovereign mercy, you have led us across the line of faith to trust in your Son, Jesus so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be reconciled to you, so that we might be justified to stand in your presence, so that one day when all of this world passes away and the new heaven and the new earth come, we will stand before your throne and we will sing of your glory for all eternity. Until that, Lord, would you cause us to endure whatever it is that you have for us in this life. Would you bolster our faith in you, Father, and in your Son, Jesus, and in your abiding spirit to persevere us in the faith, to grow us in holiness so that we might offer to you on that day not just a song, but ourselves in humble adoration of your majesty. We love you, Lord. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. We pray for those among us, Lord, who do not know the Lord Jesus in that way. We pray that you would bring them to faith, even now, Lord, in the quietness of their heart. Lead them across the line of faith, to trust in Jesus To believe in Jesus, that he is the son of God, that he died on the cross for their sins. Lead them to repent of their sin and their self-rule and trust in Christ as their only hope. Make them to be worshipers who will join the rest of us one day in singing of your glory. We love you, Father. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.